welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry on December 11th, Lord's Day Service. which I'd like to direct your attention this morning are found in Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he'd looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, where else can our nourishment come but from you? Fill us to the point of fruitfulness through the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus began his ministry by announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God. But for Jesus, to bring the kingdom is to redefine the very notion of kingdom. Prior to Jesus, conceptions of a kingdom entailed little more than a king over his subjects within a defined geographical boundary. But as Jesus walks into history, he simultaneously brings the kingdom and redefines the very notion of it in terms of God's rule. God's kingdom is no ordinary political realm carved out by guile or force of arms. You will never understand the kingdom of God if you don't remember that it's God's kingdom. It's God's kingdom. It's His, which means it is His to give away, which is another way of saying the kingdom's not ours. It's not ours to create in our own image. It's not ours to do with what we please. It is ours to receive by faith and with gratitude. So God builds the kingdom and we receive it by faith, and we can never destroy it. And as we see in verse 10, Jesus' triumphal procession to Jerusalem is about establishing the kingdom of God. And as we look at the beginning in verse 1, the story brings Jesus near to Jerusalem. So we read, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives. So we're told there in verse 1 that Jesus and his entourage are drawing near to Jerusalem. Jesus, a Galilean, 
is drawing near to Jerusalem. Jesus, a Galilean, is going to Jerusalem. And Galileans are essentially considered foreigners in Jerusalem. A Galilean would be out of place in Jerusalem, kind of like someone from middle America is out of place on K Street in Washington, D.C. You see, Galileans are tolerated in Jerusalem, but they are not welcomed. Prior to this, Jesus told the disciples three times that the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes are going to kill him. Well, what is their home base? Where is their home base? It's Jerusalem. And so as we read in verse 1 that they are drawing near to Jerusalem, the reader knows and the disciples should know what's going to happen. Jerusalem, at this stage of the story, Jerusalem is a place to be afraid of. And so for Jesus to walk into Jerusalem means that Jesus here is modeling for us courage. He is walking into the fire. He is walking into his death. And as they approach the city, Jesus sends two of his disciples into the village ahead. And what are they to do? Well, they will go to the village. They will find a colt that has never been ridden. They will untie it and bring it to Jesus. And if anyone asks them about it, just say, the Lord needs it. And so the disciples go, they get the donkey, and they bring it to Jesus. Now, the use of a donkey presupposes and intentionally projects a deliberate allusion back to Zechariah Zachari- chapter 9, verses 9 through 10, which prophesies that the Messiah will come humbled and mounted on a donkey. So it says here in Mark chapter 11, verse 2, that this is a donkey on which no one has ever sat. Why do we need that kind of donkey? Why a donkey that has not been previously ridden? Well, as we see in the Old Testament, an animal not previously used was fit for sacred service. In the sacrificial system, pure animals were used as sacrifices, and this meant animals that had not been used. We see this in Numbers 19 and Deuteronomy 21. Cows that had never been written were used to transport the Ark of the Covenant in 1 Samuel chapter 6. So this animal, this donkey that has never been ridden, is special. This donkey has sacred value for sacred use. And not only that, since it's not been ridden, it is suitable for a king. And so the disciples fetch the colt, and Jesus is riding it as they approach Jerusalem. And then we read this in verse 8. Many spread their cloaks on the ground, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Why are they doing this? Why spread garments under a person? Well, 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13 tells us that spreading garments under a person like this is recognition of royal dignity. It is clothes laid on the ground like red carpet for a dignitary. And they are crying out to Jesus, as we see in verse 9, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. These words come from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 praises God for delivering Israel from Egypt. Hosanna means save us, we pray. Elsewhere, Hosanna is used as a plea for help. For example, in 2 Samuel 14 and 2 Kings chapter 6. And by the time you get to the first century, where Jesus is now entering into Jerusalem, Hosanna is a shout of praise to God. 
And here, they're praising the coming Messiah. And so what's going on here? This is a royal and victorious arrival of Jesus the Messiah to the capital city of Jerusalem. And this is reinforced when they say in verse 10, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. What is Jesus coming to Jerusalem to do? Jesus is coming to establish the promised kingdom, the promised Davidic kingdom, we're told in verse 10. And so it's not only a person coming to Jerusalem, it's a kingdom coming to Jerusalem. Jesus is coming to establish the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God promised to David. And this is something that was prophesied about extensively back in the book of Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 8, it says, On that day the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. Still further, Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Zechariah 13 verse 1, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And so Jesus, in fulfillment of the prophecies in Zechariah, is bringing the kingdom and redefining the very notion of kingdom. In worldly kingdoms, kings send their subjects to die for the king. In God's kingdom, the king willingly marches to his own death to save the people. And in so doing, the inhabitants of the kingdom receive grace to wash away their sin and uncleanness, as we read in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1. And so seeing that context, seeing this royal procession, this triumphant procession, we're now prepared to see that there are at least four kingdom applications from Jesus entering Jerusalem. There are four kingdom principles that we see in this passage. The first is that we must make rotten power brokers uncomfortable. This is the duty of those who are in the kingdom of God. We must make rotten power brokers uncomfortable. See, this event is known by Christians as the triumphal entry. But if you notice, they don't technically enter Jerusalem until verse 11. So maybe it's better to call it the triumphal procession. And the setting of the triumphal procession is the Passover feast. And so during the festival, lots of people are making their way in to Jerusalem, which means Jesus could have slipped into the city unnoticed. But Jesus makes sure his arrival is noticed with two very dramatic public actions. The first is what we're reading here in verses 1 through 11, the triumphal procession. Indeed, it's a royal procession. And the second dramatic public action is the demonstration at the temple, which occurs in verses 15 through 19. In each action, Jesus is making sure that he is noticed, that his arrival in Jerusalem is noticed. And each action claims a unique status for Jesus. The the, the procession is a royal procession, and so the procession means that Jesus is king. And then when Jesus cleanses the temple, that means Jesus is priest. 
And notice that neither act is calculated to win the approval or the goodwill of the religious political authorities in Jerusalem, as seen by the way they challenge Jesus' authority in verses 27 through 33. These two public acts are Jesus throwing down the gauntlet to the religious and political authorities. He is taking the sort of action that forces them to respond to him. He is taking action, notice very clearly, he is taking action to force corrupt power brokers to respond to transcendent truth. The march of triumphant prophecy is part of the strength of the Christian faith. Jesus here is making rotten power brokers uncomfortable. And so should we. Now, how do we do this? How do we make rotten power brokers uncomfortable? Especially when things seem so broken and so one-sided. As Psalm 11.3 says, when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That's what we're asking, is it not? What are the righteous to do? What are we to do when the center is rotten? What are we to do when the best lack conviction? What are we to do when the powerful are full of foolish fanaticism drowned in darkness? What are we to do when those wearing suits and have letters behind their names commit crimes in open daylight? What are we to do when those with the largest platforms tell the most transparent lies? Well, remember, that's very much the situation Jesus is dealing with. We've documented throughout our time in Mark how corrupt the Pharisees are. We've documented how corrupt the power brokers are. Jesus is dealing with this very same situation. And what he does is he enters Jerusalem. How does he deal with this situation? Well, he makes them feel uncomfortable. And so should we. Well, how does he do it? How, how, and how do we do it? How do we as Christians, that's an important point here, how do we as Christians make them feel uncomfortable? Well, it's not by running to the barricade, as some Christians do. And it's not by offering the murmurs of gloom and bitter emotion, as some Christians do. But rather, to make the rotten power brokers feel uncomfortable, we must join together and speak the truth that conforms to reality. So what that means in application is we must refuse to hoist a rainbow flag, even when people in power say that we should. How do we make them feel uncomfortable? Well, we must refuse to be filled with envy, grimness, and cruelty. We must have joy as we obey the Lord. We must have joy as we raise our families. We must have joy as we gather for meals with the saints. We must have joy as we sing hymns to the Lord. We must have joy as we endure hardship. We must run to the gospel high ground and find the name of Jesus Christ frequently on our lips. And that leads to our next point. So the first kingdom principle is that we must make rotten power brokers uncomfortable. The second kingdom principle we derive from this passage is that we must draw attention to Jesus. Notice that Jesus approaches Jerusalem by riding on a donkey. Wait, I mean, how does Jesus usually travel? Well, this is the only time in Scripture we read about Jesus riding. Normally, Jesus travels by foot, occasionally by boat. 
But besides this one time, never is he riding on a donkey. And so this is a deliberate departure from the normal way Jesus travels. Why? Why does Jesus depart from the normal method of travel? Everyone else is walking. By riding a donkey, he's going to stand out. People are going to notice him. Why is he not walking? Well, because Jesus wants to be noticed. Jesus here is trying to make sure he's noticed. There's lots of people arriving in Jerusalem for, for Passover. Virtually all of them are on foot. And so the use of a donkey presupposes, as we said earlier, and, and projects a deliberate allusion to Zechariah's prophecy of the king riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And this is what Jesus is doing. And as Jesus does this, there's a crowd traveling with Jesus. We saw this back at the end of Mark chapter 10. Bartimaeus was healed, and then he joins Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. We also see in Mark chapter 15, verses 40 through 41, it's pretty clear that there's a group of ladies that are traveling with Jesus. We also have the 12 disciples traveling with Jesus, which means Jesus is traveling with an entourage. And the reception of Jesus... We see it in verses 7 through 10. Indeed, Matthew and Luke tell us it's a crowd that's gathered here. But the reception Jesus receives with mention of David and shouts of Hosanna, all this signals that the people gathered on the crowd praising Jesus agree with the Zechariah illusion. So why is Jesus entering on a donkey with an adoring entourage? Well, he's drawing attention to himself. And so should we. Not that we should draw attention to ourselves, but just like Jesus draws attention to Jesus, we too should draw attention to Jesus. We should not be afraid to draw attention to Jesus. And there's this sense, a wrong-headed sense, found within both Christians in the academy and blue-collar Christians. There's this sense that we should just keep Jesus close to the vest, that we should be guarded with the fact that we're a Christian, that we should be guarded with the name of Jesus. We should be guarded with our belief in supernatural things. But sometimes we must make sure Jesus is noticed. And this is not a call for obnoxious Christians. It's a call for Christians to not be afraid to admit they're Christians. It's a call for Christians to speak decisive words of truth in the fullness of love. And remember, Jesus is bringing the kingdom of David. And that leads to our third kingdom principle. So the first kingdom principle is that we must make rotten power brokers uncomfortable. The second kingdom principle is that we must draw attention to Jesus. And the third kingdom principle we see in this passage is that we must feed our children. Look with me at verse 10. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Now follow the theological logic here. Jesus is the son of David. That's emphasized time and time again in Scripture. It's been emphasized in the Gospel of Mark. We saw it back in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. We'll see it again in Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. Jesus is bringing the kingdom of David. This is emphasized elsewhere in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 1, verse 32, Mary was promised that her son would be seated on the throne of his father, David. 
Then in Acts chapter 13, verse 34, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, Jesus receives the sure blessings of David. And we see in the Old Testament that the entire point of the Davidic covenant was that it would point us to a son of David who would sit on the throne and reign eternally. We see this in Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 18. And now notice here, Mark chapter 11, verse 10, David is said to be Israel's father. There's rich meaning here to this language. Because before David was king, remember his job. He was a shepherd. And that's why it's promised in Ezekiel 34, 23, that David, as king of Israel, will be the shepherd of Israel. And as shepherd of Israel, he will feed Israel. He will feed them. So as the father of Israel, David will feed them. So follow the theological logic here. As king, David's job was to feed Israel. Jesus is coming to sit on the throne of David forever. Therefore, Jesus is coming to feed his sheep forever. Which is good because people today are spiritually hungry. They're looking to be fed. And the place to be fed is Jesus Christ. But the question is, how does Jesus feed, feed people spiritually now? I mean, Jesus is gone. He's ascended. He's at the right hand of the Father, as we just recited in the Nicene Creed. So how does Jesus spiritually feed his people? Well, there's many ways, and we can't cover them all. But notice that David is called Father in verse 10. In other words, the fatherly role of David is to feed Israel. So fathers... Are you listening? The fatherly role of David is to feed his children. It is the fatherly role to spiritually nourish your children. It's the fatherly role to spiritually nourish your family. And in so doing, it is Christ through his spirit who is feeding his children. And you know you are feeding your children well when they cry out to Jesus, as we see in verses 9 and 10. And that leads to our fourth and final kingdom principle from this passage, and that is that we must cry out to Christ. We must cry out to Christ. That's what's happening here. Look again in verse 9 and 10. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, do you remember what Hosanna means? Hosanna means save us. This is what we do. This is what people in the kingdom of God do. We shout, save us. We shout it. That's what they're doing. They're doing it in public too, notice. We shout, save us. That's what we do in the kingdom of God. We shout praises to God. And a lot of Christians today don't want to shout things to God. They don't want to shout praises to God because it embarrasses them. And they worry that people of reputation and standing will look down upon them because today there's no room for Christ in good society. Charles Spurgeon called good society that place that allows room for all the silly little forms by which men choose to restrict themselves. So good society is where there's room for the vain niceties of, of, of etiquette. It's where there's room for frivolous conversation. Good society is where there's room for adoration of the body, room for setting up this or that as the idol of the hour. But the problem with good society today, the problem with what passes as respectable today, 
is that there's no room for Jesus Christ there anymore. It's not fashionable to shout praises to Christ, among respectable people at least. If you live your life shouting praises to God in today's world, in today's culture, you will be tabooed at once. You will be tabooed because among the respectable, among the folly and the finery, among the rank and the honor, among the jewels and the glitter and the frivolity and the fashions, among the degrees and the tenure, there is no room for Jesus. And there is no room for those who shout praises to Jesus. Today, there's a public opinion on every subject and there is tolerance for every opinion in this country for everything but Christ and those who follow him fully. And I want you to notice that those lining the street to cry out praises to Jesus Christ, they don't care that the entire direction of the thought leaders of the day, the Pharisees, are there to destroy Jesus. They are there to kill Jesus. What do you think they're going to do to those people who shout praises to him? Well, they also might receive the wrath of the Pharisees. And I want you to notice in verse 9 and 10 how the people just totally don't care anything about that. They don't care about winning the approval of respectable people in Jerusalem. And that teaches us that those in the kingdom of God shout praises to God. And we are not deterred even when the fashionable people disapprove of it. Let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, we want to be part of your redefined kingdom, your kingdom of sacrificial love and resurrection power. Without Christ, we have no fruitfulness or abundance, but with Christ, our hearts are fattened. Give us the fruitfulness of resurrection power. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Oh, yeah.